series right now. For those that weren't with us last week, um, we, uh, we started this series, Future Proof Your Life, talking about the things to come and what the Bible has to say about the things to come. We said last week that one of the reasons we can trust what the Bible says about what is to come is because of all the amazing, accurate predictions that it has already made that have come to pass. We said that there, the Bible makes about 2,500 predictions. 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled. Some of them incredibly accurate predictions made hundreds of years before. And because the Bible has shown itself to be trustworthy in the past, we can trust what it has to say about the future. A reminder for us today, again as well, because we said last week that, that um, it's two words I want us to remember as we, as we go through this series. The word hope, everybody say hope, and humility, everybody say humility, yeah, good. So, so even though today we are going to be talking about Antichrist and some darker aspects of the things to come, the first words, we want to be reminded, the first words in the book of Revelation the very first words say, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's not the revelation of Antichrist. It's not the revelation of all kinds of doom and catastrophe. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. How awesome He is. How, what an amazing Savior He is. And the hope that that is held out for us because of all that Jesus has done, right? If our message is, is one of fear instead of one of hope, we've got the wrong message. And we approach this discussion of eschatology, study of last things, study of the eschaton, last things, eschatology, uh, we approach this study of eschatology with humility because nobody, no matter what they think, has all of this buttoned up and figured out, right? We, we, need, to, we need to be careful about being arrogant about our understanding. Check out last week's message if you want to know more about that. All right, so we're going to read two passages from um, a couple couple letters of Paul's in the New Testament, one in the, the book of 1 Thessalonians and a passage in the book of 2 Thessalonians this morning. And that's going to be our, our, our root text where we're going this morning. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. Brothers and sisters... Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve 
like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Folks, um, we grieve when loved ones pass. We grieve. We should grieve. We should grieve well. But we don't grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. Right? It goes on to say, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Why do we not grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope? Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. His, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Right? We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus all who have fallen asleep in Him. There is hope. According to the Lord's word, he says, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The coming of Jesus and all that that, he, that, that has in store for us are to be words that encourage us. Not words that cause fear. Not words that discourage us. Words that encourage us. If we are in Christ. Right? The second passage I want us to read is Thess- 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, sorry, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So notice, notice it talked about being caught up. Those of us who are alive, when the, when the voice of the archangel happens, when the trumpet call happens, when Jesus appearing happens, those who are still alive, 1 Thessalonians speaks of us being caught up together with the Lord, right? Um, here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, chapter, sorry, chapter 2 verse 1, it says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. So here we've got the language of caught up with him and gathered to him. We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us. So people were spreading word and quoting Paul as if he said these things, but he didn't. Allegedly from us, whether by letter, by a prophecy, word of mouth, or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. 
he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the, lawlessness one, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. This is not two opposing equal forces battling it out to see who's going to win. All Jesus has to do is blow on him and he's done. Right? Isn't that crazy? The breath of his mouth. And destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So, we're talking today about two parts of the things to come as we unpack this today. We're talking about the man of lawlessness, the, the, the one often called Antichrist, and we're talking about the, what we often term the rapture of the church. Now, you do a, a word search in the Bible for rapture, you won't find it. It's not in there. It's not a Bible word. It's a word that has been used by the church to describe this thing that the Bible calls being caught up with the Lord or the gathering to the Lord, right? Um, but before we get to the, the caught up stuff, um, Paul says here that, that this will not happen until the, the rebellion, the rebellion. Now, the rebellion has been there all along in many ways from the very beginning, right? There has been a rebellion against God and his plan and purpose in the world from the beginning. And we see this, we certainly see this um, you know, in, in the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. But that's not the end of the, of the rebellion story. The rebellion happens on a culture-wide level when we get to Genesis chapter 6 and what happens around the, 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 um, 
the flood and all the things that happened there. I wish we had time to get into that because it's the truth is crazier than fiction. But anyways, um, uh, so the things that happened there. And then in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel or Babel. Tower of Babel. This was not just some weird story about a bunch of people who built a tower and God didn't like it, and so he stopped them and scattered them. It's not what Genesis 11 is about. It's about a worldwide rebellion against God and his purpose and an allegiance to demonic powers that they wanted to come and dwell upon the mountain because that was the mindset of the ancient world. The gods dwell on mountains. They wanted to build a mountain to invite these demonic powers to come so that they would align themselves with them and have power themselves. That's what Genesis 11 is about. It is about the greatest cultural rebellion before the one that is to come. Okay? And that's why all through Scripture, the city of Babylon, it's where Babylon comes from, Babel, Babel, right? Notice the, the word similarity. The city of Babylon has been the symbol of rebellion against God all through Scripture, including in the book of Revelation. And so when it talks in the Bible about Babylon, it's not necessarily talking about a rebuilt city that will exist sometime in the future. It's talking symbolically about the rebellion of humanity against God and His purpose on the earth. A cultural rebellion against God. Culture, human culture, has always been in rebellion against God. Our governmental systems, our economic systems, have been in rebellion against God. Even when it appeared otherwise, as though we lived in a Christian culture, the driving forces of power and greed that drove Western culture have been Antichrist. Right? That's why we have stories about Christian nations coming to the Americas and propagating genocide. In the name of greed. Those are ugly things we need to face that are part of our story. Not because the Christian faith is evil, but because the world systems that the church of the time had aligned itself with were evil. Right? And the cultural rebellion against God and His principles 
is continuing to grow today. The Bible tells us this is coming. We should not be surprised. We should not be shocked. And we need not be afraid. 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, says this. Many of you could quote this passage. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. That's Paul's description of the downward spiral of culture in our rebellion against God. Right? We don't need to fear as followers of Christ. But hear me, an age of lawlessness has begun to prepare the way for the man of lawlessness. Everything, everything in our culture is up for question. Have you noticed that? Every anchor point in society, every authority, every tradition, every cultural norm, and everything that claims to be true is being brought into question. Right? Um, it is said that we, we can't know what is true. And this message about questioning truth has been picking up steam for about 50 years. And it's part of a massive movement in society called postmodernism. Okay, hang with me here. Modernism was the age that arose during the Enlightenment in the 16 and 1700s. And its focus was on science and rationalism and the need to categorize and understand everything and put it in its place and put it in a box, right? That the systems of modernism had their own problems. I'm not saying modernism was good and postmodernism was bad. Modernism was a worldly system of its own and had its own problems. And the church married itself to that system for hundreds of years. Postmodernism is a rejection of that way of understanding the world. But in the process, it's, it's attempt to undermine Scripture, to undermine everything that we hold as true and truth is part of what is happening. The lawlessness, the throwing out of order is part of what is happening, okay? Now, I want you to hear the next words I'm going to say very, very carefully. Hear what I'm saying and hear what I'm not saying. 
and don't take me out of context, please. Okay? Political movements, political movements such as militant feminism, the gay agenda, and the transgender movement are not primarily about women's rights, gay rights, and gender confusion. But they are political movements with a postmodern agenda to question and burn down the structures of the past. Please hear me. I care about women's rights. And I care about people who identify as LGBTQ and the turmoil that they experience in their lives. But the ideology behind these movements are subtly and intentionally promoting anarchy. And it seems to be a sign that the spirit of lawlessness is at work in our culture. What this doesn't mean, what this doesn't mean is that we rage against a generation of confused young men and women that are a product of the age. Our response to people should be the same as that of Jesus who looked at people around him that were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them and he sent his followers to bring them a message of hope. Our battle is never against flesh and blood, the Bible says. It is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual principalities and powers that play puppet master with the lives of lost and confused people and control the systems and the ideologies of our world. People do not need our righteous indignation. They need the love of the Savior. And that is how we fight against principalities and powers. And so, we get to the man of lawlessness. The way is being prepared for the man of lawlessness. We don't have time to read all the scriptures around this this morning, um, but you can look them up later, jot them down. Uh, in Revelation chapter 13, there's a significant discussion about uh, the dragon who gives authority to the beast from the sea and the beast from the sea who gives authority to the beast from the earth and that these beasts, oftentimes we have assumed that they are a person, probably are, are focused on a person, but they're a system of rebellion against God, right? Here's what it says in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 13. The beast was given power 
to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. I can't take questions right now, Remy. We can talk later, though. Well, yeah, so, so Remy's bringing up a, the preterist view of end times things that says that, that um, basically all of Revelation was fulfilled by the Roman Empire. But um, Paul was already in the Roman Empire he had already lived through some of the worst emperors of Rome, right? Augustus was the first emperor who, who uh, conquered much of the known world with brutality. Uh, Claudius was a nutbar who appointed his horse to the Senate and was, was extremely... Um, evil, and Nero was in the process of persecuting the church and killing Christians, even while Paul wrote this and said, this guy hasn't come yet, and even this is not the rebellion, it's still to come, right? So many people do believe that, but, but that's not, that's not, I believe, that's not my view, okay? Um, So we see many places in Scripture where there, it tells us there will be a one-world government at some point. This says he'll be given authority over all languages, nations, and peoples, right? Um, and that, that one-world government is a mockery of the kingdom of Jesus that is coming, right? Um, and uh, we're going to talk more about that whole business next time in three weeks when we talk about the, uh, the, the seven years of tribulation. In Matthew 24, verse 15, and in Daniel 9, verse 27, so Daniel was written 600 years before Jesus, and then Jesus picks up a verse from, some verses from there and, and brings this up as he's talking about last things. And it talks about the ruler who will set up an abomination that causes desolation in the temple of God. Okay? Set up an abomination that causes desolation. Similar to what Remy brought up about the, the Roman Empire, there are those who say that all of the stuff in Daniel chapter 9, that talks about this man who sets up an abomination that causes desolation in the temple, was all talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Greek king over that region, the region where Jerusalem is, um, 
in 167 B.C., there was the Maccabees, which you'll find some stories about the Maccabees in the Catholic Bible, um, in the Catholic Old Testament. The Maccabees rose up in rebellion against the Greek king. They were crushed at first. Eventually they did win, but they were crushed at first. And when Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 B.C. came into Jerusalem, he, he, he sacrificed pigs on the altar of the temple. Now, you can't imagine a more horrible desecration of the temple for, a Jewish, for Jewish people than sacrificing pigs. Definitely not kosher on the altar. Then causing, then forcing the priests to eat the meat of the pigs in the temple. And then set up an idol to Zeus in the temple to be worshipped. Now, a lot of historians say that's what Daniel was talking about. But if that's what Daniel was talking about, why does Jesus in Matthew 24, 200 years after all of those events, say, watch for this, because this will be a sign of my coming? If you remember, if you remember last week when we talked about the two mountains thing, that sometimes in Scripture, the, the, the prophets would write things and they would see uh, an earlier fulfillment and a later fulfillment, they'd see them together and don't understand that they're two different things. The layering of those things, right? And that's what's going on here. This, this lawless one is coming. He will, this scripture tells us, he will set up in the temple. Now, now, there is no temple in Jerusalem, right? What does that mean? Well, that means there will be a temple in Jerusalem. There will be a third temple. The Bible actually predicts in Ezekiel 44 to 48, it gives, it gives actual very detailed descriptions of the third temple that will be built in Jerusalem. It will be built. And in fact, there are preparations right now for the temple to be built. When I was in Jerusalem in 2004, um, we, we happened to be there during Passover week. And every year during Passover week, the Temple Mount Faithful, an organization dedicated to the building of the temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, take a cornerstone that they have prepared for the temple and they try to make it up to the temple mount with this cornerstone. Now they know they're not going to get there. It's guarded. But symbolically they do this every year declaring it's coming. The temple will be built. And in fact, uh, many of the articles of the temple are already prepared. I, I saw... This, I took this picture with my own eyes. This picture of a lampstand that is made in preparation to be put in the holy place in the temple. It is there, it is waiting, and so are all the other artifacts that are needed for the temple. It's coming. So what this means is that the temple will be built 
And um, so who is this lawless one? Who is he? If you, if you just search Antichrist in Google, search for images, you know, under images in Google and search Antichrist, all kinds of crazy things come up, right? Um, there is, so, so one, of the, one of the favorites is the Pope, people that don't like the Catholic Church, or don't like the Pope, they, they'll say it's the Pope. Um, I remember Mikhail Gorbachev during Glasnost when he was making changes in Russia and befriending the West. He was, he was definitely going to be the Antichrist, right? Um, Putin comes up, Barack Obama comes up, Donald Trump comes up. So you got, you got both sides of the American spectrum there, right? Um, Mahmoud Adinejab, who was the president of Iran, was said to be, he was going to be the, the uh, Antichrist. Oprah, <laughs> definitely going to be Oprah, right? Many more guesses. I mean, people have all kinds of opinions of who the Antichrist is going to be. Let me say this. Guessing who it is going to be or is, is not helpful to anyone, okay? It just creates confusion and discredits the faith as much as giving dates of Jesus' return. It's foolish. Please don't participate in that. I mean, it's sure, we can think about who might it be, but making declarations of it's this person or that person, please don't do that, okay? Um, um, here's the deal. Every major religion in the world right now is awaiting a Messiah. Christians, of course, are awaiting Christ. Did you know that the Quran says that Jesus will return? Muslims are waiting for the return of Christ. But before Christ comes, they're waiting for the Mahdi, who will come and prepare the way for Christ to come. Buddhists await Maitreya, the final, the final incarnation of the Buddha. Hindus await Kalki, the tenth and final avatar of Vishnu, the god Vishnu. Jews, of course, are waiting for their Messiah because they don't believe Jesus was him. Every major religion in the world is awaiting a Messiah figure to come. And so this person who will set himself up in the temple to be worshipped as Messiah and as God will be one who is received by all the religions of the world, including deceived Christians, when he appears. And if he's going to appear in the next two or three decades, 
The reality is, he's already here somewhere. If we're that close, we don't know, I don't know, but if we're that close, he's already here somewhere. Either in hiding or in public, but we don't know this person's intentions yet, right? Here's a thought. If Satan doesn't know when Jesus is returning, Jesus said, no one knows. If Satan doesn't know when Jesus is returning, he's had to have someone in place in every generation. Isn't that interesting? So he had to have maybe a Napoleon and a Kaiser Wilhelm, right? And an Adolf Hitler and all kinds of people we could name today, right? But he's had to have someone in every generation ready to step into this place of world leadership. But the Bible says in the passage we read that he's currently being held back by someone. Did you catch that? Someone is holding him back. Someone is restraining this happening so that it says it will happen at the right moment. Right? So who is this one that is holding him back? It can't be a mortal person because if this person was restraining him in the time of Paul and is restraining him now, it can't be the same person, right? Uh, it's either a powerful angelic being that's been given that task, but most likely, what I believe, is it's the Holy Spirit, right? That was poured out upon the church that is living in every believer around the world. One-third of humanity claims to follow Christ. Probably not all do, but, but a huge number of humanity are Christ followers on the earth. <clears throat> on the earth. Whew, I need a drink. Where's my water? <clears throat> and, um, and so the... the the salt and light component of the Spirit of God living in the people of God around the world, holding back evil around them, is holding back the darkness. So when the church is taken out of the world, that will mean that the pervasive influence of of light and hope will suddenly be removed. And it will make room for a significant advancing of the forces of darkness. It doesn't mean that God will leave the world without a witness of the gospel. We'll talk about that in the next, our next time. Um, but the world will be susceptible to deception. The sudden disappearance of hundreds of millions of people will probably be explained something about a leap in the evolution of the human race. It will be said that the closed-minded and backward people were taken out of the way by some force so that humanity could, could rise to its next level of evolution. 
the Aquarian Age of Enlightenment, right? We're given a sneak preview here of what will happen at the end of the seven years, which we'll cover next time, that Jesus will return and destroy the lawless one. But he will be free to deceive the world for a time, and it will be in accordance with the, the scripture we read says, in accordance with how Satan works, displays of power, signs, and wonders that serve the lie. What is the lie? That he is God, right? And all the ways that wickedness deceives, it says. When that man is, is, uh, is revealed... The catching up, the gathering will happen. And we're just about, we are, we are out of time. I was going to dive into some of that today, but I have to leave you hanging. I have to leave you hanging. We were going to get to this. Ooh. But we're going to have to cover that next time. But let me, let me go here. The key to future-proofing, the key to future-proofing our lives when it comes to the lawless one and the age of lawlessness that, that we're walking in and the things that are to come. Let me, let me say this. Where, where did I put that here? Oh, yeah. Ah, we'll save that. We'll save that. Sorry. Ah, man, so much to say. So little time. Um, the key. Let me, let me, say, let me say this. Persecution will come. Our brothers and sisters around the world have been experiencing persecution for, for decades and centuries. Persecution will come to North America. It will come. And it will be good for us. Rather than freak out and fear, understand that when persecution comes, it will be good for the church of North America. Where is the church exploding the fastest in the world right now? The top, the top, this is, st this is real statistics, the fastest growing church in the world right now is in Iran. Second and third fastest are North Korea and China. Because when persecution comes, people have to decide which side am I on. And the best way to future-proof our lives right now 
before it comes, before we're faced with difficult decisions, is to, is to decide whose side we're on. To decide to be an overcomer. Jesus spoke to the seven churches in, Revelation, in, in the book of Revelation. The seven churches in, in Asia Minor. And he picked out issues in each one of the churches where they had compromised with the world. But he spoke to each one of the churches and he said, If you will be an overcomer. And I will put my name on you. And you will be a pillar in the temple of God. And I will give you a white stone with a new name on it. And the second death will not harm you, will not touch you. And you will live, you will be seated on my throne with me. And he, he gave seven, seven Blessings for the overcomer. What does it take to be an overcomer? It takes having our lives given completely in allegiance to the one who's already won the battle. The one who will just breathe on the man of lawlessness and he will be undone. Amen? Let's stand. Thank you for your patience today. Our message is a message of hope. Because of Jesus' resurrection, because Jesus is not just some teacher long past, but he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He is life and hope and peace. Because of who Jesus is, we can have hope. No matter what comes, no matter what we face, we can have hope. So I want to pray with you today. Maybe some of you have never even kind of crossed that line of faith. You've not said, I, I want to live for Jesus. I believe in him. I believe in what he's done, his death and resurrection. And I want to put my faith and my hope in him. Why wait another day? If you've got questions, you've got things you, you say, I... I I've got so many questions I need answered first. Well, there are, there are answers to mo many of your questions and we'd love to chat with you. But at some point, it's a leap of faith. So everything I see about Jesus, I may not understand it all, but, but he seems so trustworthy. I want my life to align with him. I want to pray for us today that, that if you've not made that step, you would make it today. And if you've made that step in the past, but you've been compromising with the world, that you would say, I want my allegiance to be to Jesus and Him alone. I don't want to participate in the rebellion. 
and the anarchy of the world, but I want my life to align with Jesus. So Father, I pray for every person in this room that God, we would, we would hear your spirit call. We would, we would know that you're speaking to us in this moment, drawing us to yourself. And that God, if we've never made that step, we would make it now. That you would lead us in abandoning our lives to you. And letting you be our king and our leader and our Lord and our friend. God, if we've been compromising our life with the world, that in this moment we would decide to respond with true surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. So just before you're dismissed as you go, we want to make sure, if I could call the ministry team forward, please. I want to make sure you know that uh, you are more than welcome to come and receive prayer this morning from our team. We believe in an amazing God that does amazing stuff, and we'd love to pray and agree with you for anything that the Lord is stirring up in your heart today. I also wanted to mention that next Sunday we are going to have team challenge here. So that's... Um, that's going to be an amazing opportunity again to hear more of what God is doing in our world today. So if you, you need to go now, be blessed. Go. We'll see you next Sunday. Um, but if you want to receive prayer, you can come. Pastor Andrew's going to, or Pastor Graham is as well going to lead us in a song. Now, so thank you. Be blessed. Let's uh, worship this morning. If you feel like standing around, we're going to sing the stand. stood before